Chapter Twenty Five of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter Twenty Five The Prisoner. I really don't know, continued the man in the corner blandly, what it was that interested me in the case from the very first. Certainly it had nothing very out of the way or mysterious about it. But I journeyed down to Brighton nevertheless, as I felt that something deeper and more subtle lay behind that extraordinary assault, following a robbery, no doubt. I must tell you that the police had allowed it to be freely circulated abroad, that they held a clue. It had been easy enough to ascertain who the lodger was who had rented the furnished room in Russell House. His name was supposed to be Edward Skinner, and he had taken the room about a fortnight ago, but had gone away ostensibly for two or three days on the very day of Mr. Morton's mysterious disappearance. It was on the 20th that Mr. Morton was found, and thirty-six hours later the public were gratified to hear that Mr. Edward Skinner had been traced to London and arrested on the charge of assault upon the person of Mr. Francis Morton and of robbing him of the sum of ten thousand pounds. Then a further sensation was added to the already bewildering case by the startling announcement that Mr. Francis Morton refused to prosecute. Of course, the Treasury took up the case and subpoenaed Mr. Morton as a witness, so that gentleman, if he wished to hush the matter up, or had been in any way terrorized into a promise of doing so, gained nothing by his refusal, except an additional amount of curiosity in the public mind, and further sensation around the mysterious case. It was all this, you see, which had interested me, and brought me down to Brighton on March 23rd, to see the prisoner Edward Skinner arraigned before the beak. I must say that he was a very ordinary-looking individual. Fair, of ruddy complexion, with snub nose and the beginning of a bald place on the top of his head, he too looked the embodiment of a prosperous, stodgy city gent. I took a quick survey of the witnesses present, and guessed that the handsome, stylish woman sitting next to Mr. Reginald Pepys, the noted lawyer for the Crown, was Mrs. Morton. There was a large crowd in court, and I heard whispered comments among the feminine portion thereof as to the beauty of Mrs. Morton's gown the value of her large picture hat, and the magnificence of her diamond rings. The police gave all the evidence required with regard to the finding of Mr. Morton in the room at Russell House, and also to the arrest of Skinner at the Langham Hotel in London. It appears that the prisoner seemed completely taken aback at the charge preferred against him, and declared that though he knew Mr. Francis Morton slightly in business, he knew nothing as to his private life. Prisoner stated, continued Inspector Buckle, that he was not even aware Mr. Morton lived in Brighton, but I have evidence here, which I will place before your honour, to prove that the prisoner was seen in the company of Mr. Morton at nine-thirty o'clock on the morning of the assault. Cross-examined by Mr. Matthew Quiller, the detective inspector admitted that prisoner merely said that he did not know that Mr. Morton was a resident of Brighton. He never denied having met him there. The witness, or rather witnesses, referred to by the police, were two Brighton tradesmen who knew Mr. Morton by sight and had seen him on the morning of the 17th, walking with the accused. In this instance Mr. Quiller had no questions to ask of the witnesses, and it was generally understood that the prisoner did not wish to contradict their statement. Constable Hartrick told the story of the finding of the unfortunate Mr. Morton after his four days' incarceration. The constable had been sent round by the chief inspector, after certain information given by Mrs. Chapman, the landlady of Russell House. He had found the door locked and forced it open. Mr. Morton was in an armchair, with several yards of rope wound loosely round him. He was almost unconscious and there was a thick wool shawl tied round his mouth which must have deadened any cry or groan the poor gentleman might have uttered. But, as a matter of fact, 
The constable was under the impression that Mr. Morton had been either drugged or stunned in some way at first, which had left him weak and faint, and prevented him from making himself heard or extricating himself from his bonds, which were very clumsily, evidently very hastily, wound round his body. The medical officer who was called in, and also Dr. Mellish, who attended Mr. Morton, both said that he seemed dazed by some stupefying drug, and also, of course, terribly weak and faint with the want of food. The first witness of real importance was Mrs. Chapman, the proprietress of Russell House, whose original information to the police led to the discovery of Mr. Morton. In answer to Mr. Pepys, she said that on March 1st the accused called at her house and gave his name as Mr. Edward Skinner. He required, he said, a furnished room at a moderate rental for a permanency, with full attendance when he was in, but he added that he would often be away for two or three days or even longer at a time. "'He told me that he was a traveller for a tea-house,' continued Mrs. Chapman, "'and I showed him the front room on the third floor, as he did not want to pay more than twelve shillings a week. I asked him for a reference, but he put three sovereigns in my hand, and said with a laugh that he supposed paying for his room a month in advance was sufficient reference. If I didn't like him after that, I could give him a week's notice to quit. "'You did not think of asking him the name of the firm for which he travelled? asked Mr. Pepys. "'No, I was quite satisfied as he paid me for the room. The next day he sent in his luggage and took possession of the room. He went out most mornings on business, but was always in Brighton for Saturday and Sunday. On the 16th he told me that he was going to Liverpool for a couple of days. He slept in the house that night, and went off early on the 17th, taking his portmanteau with him.' "'At what time did he leave?' asked Mr. Pepys. "'I couldn't say exactly,' replied Mrs. Chapman, with some hesitation. "'You see, this is the off-season here. None of my rooms are let, except the one to Mr. Skinner, and I have only one servant. I keep four during the summer, autumn, and winter season,' she added with conscious pride, fearing that her former statement might prejudice the reputation of Russell House. "'I thought I had heard Mr. Skinner go out about nine o'clock, but about an hour later the girl and I were both in the basement.' and we heard the front door open and shut with a bang, and then a step in the hall. "'That's Mr. Skinner,' said Mary. "'So it is,' I said. "'Why, I had thought he'd gone an hour ago.' "'He did go out then,' says Mary, "'for he left his bedroom door open, and I went in to do his bed, and tidy his room. "'Just go and see if that's him, Mary,' I said. And Mary ran up to the hall and up the stairs, and came back to tell me that it was Mr. Skinner all right enough. He had gone straight up to his room. Mary didn't see him, but he had another gentleman with him, as she could hear them talking in Mr. Skinner's room. "'Then you can't tell us at what time the prisoner left the house finally?' "'No, that I can't. I went out shopping soon after that. When I came in it was twelve o'clock. I went up to the third floor, and found that Mr. Skinner had locked his door and taken the key with him. As I knew Mary had already done the room, I did not trouble more about it. Though I did think it strange for a gentleman to lock up his room and not leave the key with me.' "'And, of course, you heard no noise of any kind in the room then?' "'No, not that day nor the next. But on the third day Mary and I both thought we heard a funny sound. I said that Mr. Skinner had left his window open, and it was the blind flapping against the window-pane. But when we heard the funny noise again, I put my ear to the keyhole, and I thought I could hear a groan. I was very frightened, and sent Mary for the police.' Mrs. Chapman had nothing more of interest to say. The prisoner certainly was her lodger. She had last seen him on the evening of the 16th, going up to his room with his candle. Mary, the servant, had much the same story to relate as her mistress. "'I think it was him, right enough,' said Mary guardedly. "'I didn't see him, but I went up to his landing and stopped a moment outside his door. I could hear loud voices in the room, gentlemen talking.' "'I suppose you would not do such a thing as listen, Mary?' queried Mr. Pepys with a smile. "'No, sir,' 
said Mary with a bland smile. I didn't catch what the gentleman said, but one of them spoke so loud I thought they must be quarreling. Mr. Skinner was the only person in possession of a latch key, I presume. No one else could have come in without ringing at the door? Oh, no, sir. That was all. So far, you see, the case was progressing splendidly for the Crown against the prisoner. The contention, of course, was that Skinner had met Mr. Morton, brought him home with him, assaulted, drugged, then gagged and bound him, and finally robbed him of whatever money he had in his possession, which, according to certain affidavits, which presently would be placed before the magistrate, amounted to ten thousand pounds in notes. But in all this there still remained the great element of mystery for which the public and the magistrate would demand an explanation, namely, what were the relationships between Mr. Morton and Skinner, which had induced the former to refuse the prosecution of the man who had not only robbed him, but had so nearly succeeded in leaving him to die a terrible and lingering death? Mr. Morton was too ill as yet to appear in person. Dr. Mellish had absolutely forbidden his patient to undergo the fatigue and excitement of giving evidence himself in court that day. But his depositions had been taken at his bedside, were sworn to by him, and were now placed before the magistrate by the prosecuting counsel, and the facts they revealed were certainly as remarkable as they were brief and enigmatical. As they were read by Mr. Pepys, an awed and expectant hush seemed to descend over the large crowd gathered there, and all necks were strained eagerly forward to catch a glimpse of a tall, elegant woman, faultlessly dressed and wearing exquisite jewellery, but whose handsome face wore, as the prosecuting counsel read her husband's deposition, a more and more ashen hue. "'This, your honour, is the statement made upon oath by Mr. Francis Morton,' commenced Mr. Pepys, in that loud, sonorous voice of his, which sounds so impressive in a crowded and hushed court. I was obliged, for certain reasons which I refused to disclose, to make a payment of a large sum of money to a man whom I did not know and have never seen. It was in a manner of which my wife was cognizant, and which had entirely to do with her own affairs. I was merely the go-between, as I thought it was not fit that she should see to this matter herself. The individual in question had made certain demands, of which she kept me in ignorance as long as she could, not wishing to unnecessarily worry me. At last she decided to place the whole matter before me, and I agreed with her that it would be best to satisfy the man's demands. Then I wrote to that individual, whose name I do not wish to disclose, addressing the letter as my wife directed me to do to the Brighton Post Office, saying that I was ready to pay the ten thousand pounds to him, at any place or time, and in what manner he might appoint. I received a reply which bore the Brighton postmark, and which desired me to be outside Furnival's the Drapers in West Street at nine-thirty on the morning of March 17th, and to bring the money, ten thousand pounds, in Bank of England notes. On the 16th my wife gave me a cheque for that amount, and I cashed it at her bank, Bird's in Fleet Street. At half-past nine the following morning I was at the appointed place. An individual wearing a grey overcoat, bowler hat, and red tie accosted me by name, and requested me to walk as far as his lodgings in the King's Parade. I followed him. Neither of us spoke. He stopped at a house which bore the name Russell House, in which I shall be able to swear to as soon as I am able to go out. He let himself in with a latch-key, and asked me to follow him up to his room on the third floor. I thought I noticed when we were in the room that he locked the door. However, I had nothing of any value about me except the ten thousand pounds, which I was ready to give him. We had not exchanged the slightest word. I gave him the notes, and he folded them and put them in his pocket-book. Then I turned towards the door, and without the slightest warning I felt myself suddenly gripped by the shoulder, while a handkerchief was pressed to my nose and mouth. I struggled as best I could, but the handkerchief was saturated with chloroform, and I soon lost consciousness. I hazily remember the man saying to me in short, jerky sentences, spoken at intervals, 
while I was still weakly struggling. "'What a fool you must think me, my dear sir. Did you really think that I was going to let you quietly walk out of here straight to the police station, eh? Such dodges have been done before, I know, when a man's silence has to be bought for money. Find out who he is, see where he lives, give him the money, then inform against him. No, you don't, not this time. I am off to the containing with this ten thousand pounds, and I can get to New Haven in time for the midday boat, so you'll have to keep quiet until I am the other side of the channel, my friend. You won't be much inconvenienced. My landlady will hear your groans presently and release you, so you'll be all right. There, now drink this. That's better. He forced something bitter down my throat. Then I remember nothing more. When I regained consciousness, I was sitting in an armchair with some rope tied round me and a wool shawl round my mouth. I hadn't the strength to make the slightest effort to disentangle myself or to utter a scream. I felt terribly sick and faint. Mr. Reginald Pepys had finished reading, and no one in that crowded court had thought of uttering a sound. The magistrate's eyes were fixed upon the handsome lady in the magnificent gown, who was mopping her eyes with a dainty lace handkerchief. The extraordinary narrative of the victim, of so daring an outrage, had kept everyone in suspense. One thing was still expected to make the measure of sensation as full as it had ever been over any criminal case, and that was Mrs. Morton's evidence. She was called by the prosecuting counsel, and slowly, gracefully, she entered the witness-box. There was no doubt that she had felt keenly the tortures which her husband had undergone, and also the humiliation of seeing her name dragged forcibly into this ugly, blackmailing scandal. Closely questioned by Mr. Reginald Pepys, she was forced to admit that the man who blackmailed her was connected with her early life in a way which would have brought terrible disgrace upon her and upon her children. The story she told, amidst many tears and sobs, and much use of her beautiful lace handkerchief and beringed hands, was exceedingly pathetic. It appears that when she was barely seventeen she was inveigled into a secret marriage with one of those foreign adventurers who swarm in every country, and who styled himself Comte Armand de la Tremule. He seems to have been a blackguard of unusually low pattern, for, after he had extracted from her some two hundred pounds of her pin-money and a few diamond brooches, he left her one fine day, with a laconic word to say that he was sailing for Europe by the Argentina, and would not be back for some time. She was in love with the brute, poor young soul, for when, a week later, she read that the Argentina was wrecked, and presumably every soul on board had perished, she wept very many bitter tears over her early widowhood. Fortunately, her father, a very wealthy pork-butcher of Chicago, had known nothing of his daughter's culpable foolishness. Four years later he took her to London, where she met Mr. Francis Morton and married him. She led six or seven years of very happy married life, when one day, like a thunderbolt from a clear blue sky, she received a typewritten letter, signed Armand de la Tremule, full of protestations of undying love, telling a long and pathetic tale of years of suffering in a foreign land, whither he had drifted after having been rescued almost miraculously from the wreck of the Argentina, and where he never had been able to scrape a sufficient amount of money to pay for his passage home. At last fate had favored him. He had, after many vicissitudes, found the whereabouts of his dear wife, and was now ready to forgive all that was past and take her to his loving arms once again. What followed was the usual course of events when there is a blackguard and a fool of a woman. She was terrorized, and did not dare to tell her husband for some time, she corresponded with the Comte de la Tremule, begging him for her sake and in memory of the past not to attempt to see her. She found him amenable to reason in the shape of several hundred pounds, which passed through the Brighton post-office into his hands. At last, one day, by accident, Mr. Morton came across one of the Comte de la Tremule's interesting letters. She confessed everything, throwing herself upon her husband's mercy. 
Now Mr. Francis Morton was a businessman, who viewed life practically and soberly. He liked his wife, who kept him in luxury, and wished to keep her, whereas the Comte de Letremule seemed willing enough to give her up for a consideration. Mrs. Morton, who had the sole and absolute control of her fortune, on the other hand, was willing enough to pay the price and hush up the scandal, which she believed, since she was a bit of a fool, would land her in prison for bigamy. Mr. Francis Morton wrote to the Comte de la Tumule that his wife was ready to pay him the sum of ten thousand pounds, which he demanded in payment for her absolute liberty, and his own complete disappearance out of her life now and forever. The appointment was made, and Mr. Morton left his house at nine a.m. on March 17th, with the ten thousand pounds in his pocket. The public and the magistrate had hung breathless upon her words. There was nothing but sympathy felt for this handsome woman, who throughout had been more sinned against than sinning, and whose gravest fault seems to have been a total lack of intelligence in dealing with her own life. But I can assure you of one thing, that in no case within my recollection was there ever such a sensation in a court as when the magistrate, after a few minutes' silence, said gently to Mrs. Morton, "'And now, Mrs. Morton, will you kindly look at the prisoner, and tell me if in him you recognize your former husband?' And she, without even turning to look at the accused, said quietly, "'Oh, no, Your Honour, of course that man is not the Comte de la Tremule.'" End of chapter 25